The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading comes from Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you, Julie, uh, for the second time. Uh, Good morning, everyone. Uh, My name is Paul Lim, and I've had the pleasure and privilege of serving here as a scholar in residence uh, for the last several years. And um, so today I have the pleasure and privilege of opening up the scriptures as it was just read for us. Um, So it is a very momentous occasion for all of us, all of those who are commissioned or ordained, into serving God more officially within the context of the local church, then it really does behoove us to ask the most fundamental question to be asked by anyone who comes to church or thinks about Jesus at all. Who or what is a Christian? Who is a Christian? What does, what does a Christian do or what is that person? Because the sermon title is uh, Imitation of Christ. What does that mean to imitate somebody? Do you remember when you were imitating somebody, trying to be like somebody? I remember um, Andre Agassi as a tennis player. You know, he was uh, such a phenom, and some of my friends who are tennis players are trying to imitate him, or Michael Jordan, you know, when he was playing in his own heyday. People are buying Jordans then, and I think they're buying them even today, right? Air Jordans or whatever. So these are acts of imitation, or whether it is a Taylor Swift in her kind of singing prowess and her, and whatever it is, we imitate people, and imitation is the highest form of compliment, as they say. So that means as Christians, we are called to imitate Christ. As those who are commissioned and ordained into the service of God, they're called more specifically into imitating Christ within the context of serving and strengthening and sustaining the body of Christ. So today's text helps us answer that in a few different ways. Who is a Christian? What is a Christian? And what does that mean to imitate Christ in our life and service? Um, So I have three very uh, brief points uh, to deliver in our homily or short sermon. Uh, It is supposed to be about 15 minutes. The first service I was 16 minutes and 13 seconds. I was very proud of it. It was within 10% grace period of overage, but that was okay. (laughs) So I'll try to do the same, although I'm going to be a little bit more lenient to myself if it is okay, because anyway, whatever. So okay, um, we're going to talk about these three points. Uh, To imitate Christ or to be a Christian means to understand your identity fundamentally along these three lines. One is justice, second is mercy, third is love. Justice, mercy, and love. If you were to ask anyone within the context of ancient Judaism as to what is your God like, what is Yahweh like, they would have unhesitatingly said, our God is somebody 
who really embodies justice and mercy in his own being and act. God acts according to God's character. That is, God is just all the way, and God is merciful all the way, and God undergirds God's act and being through God's chesed, which means God's covenant faithfulness or mercy, or put it in today's parlance, love. Justice, mercy, and love. So someone, uh, someone who seeks justice without mercy, and we know some people like that, unfortunately, is not the kind of person who is either, as Paul addresses, as somebody who is wise or someone whose speech is seasoned with salt. Conversely, pursuit of mercy without justice means uh, sort of a benign neglect of those hardships and sufferings of those around us by focusing on the individual aspect of the fallenness of the world while forgetting the structural and systemic issues surrounding the individual self and society. So three points are as follows. One, having to do with justice. That justice is inseparably tied to our justification by faith alone. And I have more to say about that. Just, justice and justification. Number two, mercy is always an outward act and attitude. We see that in verses five and six. And thirdly, Love is the bond, bond that unites justice and mercy in the Christian journey. So very quickly, we'll talk about just, justice and justification, mercy and outward orientation, and thirdly, love and the Christian identity. So first point, justice. We hear about justice a lot, justice for all, and we've been debating as to what that looks like, how that should be kind of parceled out in our life, and historical memories of justice and injustice, and so on and so forth is, is, is in our world, in our ecosystems, clarifying some issues, confusing some others as well. I was talking with a dear Christian brother who's also a faculty member at Vanderbilt, and he attends a very well-known evangelical church in town. He said to me that in his 50 years of Christian life, he has never really heard any sermons directly tied to justice until very recently. And now that he attends a different church, that's about all he hears. And as we were having lunch last week, we were both kind of wondering if the gospel was only about justice and that rather narrowly defined. And we went back and forth. The, hour, the lunch was supposed to be about an hour. It ended up being about an hour and 45 minutes. So you can imagine how engaged we were about these two topics. I'm here to tell you that I don't think it is, the, the, the gospel isn't only about justice, but as a Christian community, we need to think, um, you know, kind of more critically and Christianly about that because our cultural, current cultural preoccupation with justice is an understandable one, right? So our present cultural preoccupation with justice is an understandable one, but as a, as a Christian community, we need to think critically and Christianly about whether the social vision and version of justice lines up with the biblical perspective on justice. So this is a very big task for us. From the book of Exodus to the apocalyptic end of human history recorded in Revelation in a proleptic way, God's way of justice was always based on the fact that the people of God were justified freely by faith as a gift from God. Whether from the book of Exodus where there's a, the salvation event for the people of Israel, they were, free, they were made righteous, they were declared righteous, they were declared right in the sight of God by what God had done and initiated himself. 
In other words, there is no room for self-righteousness. In the New Testament, through the ministration of Christ and his crucifixion and resurrection and present-day intercession, the New Testament Christianity declared that we are made right in the sight of God, not by what we have done in terms of works that prepared it, but by God's amazing and unprecedented work of grace in justifying us by making us just again. So there was, and Paul asked this really important rhetorical theological question, where then is boasting? Paul says, you know what, if everything you have is a gift from God, then there is zero room for boasting. In other words, there is no room for self-righteousness. Look with me in verses 2 through 4. Paul's prayer here teaches that God's way of reestablishing God's justice. So justice is something that God has within God, but also God desires in the externally in the universe, in our cosmos. That reestablishing of God's justice is through the proclamation and practice of the mystery of Christ. God's way of justice is through Christ. God's way of reestablishing justice is going, going, going to come through how people who are justified freely by the gift of faith will reenact and enact that vision and version of righteousness of God and being right with God. Justice was always a byproduct of justification by free grace through faith alone. That, I think, is a very important point. Justice was always a byproduct of justification by free grace through faith alone. Because the secular vision and version of justice is basically evening the score and saying, okay, we have had these things that were done against us. We're going to get it right. I think the Christian vision and version of justice says we are freed by God's grace alone, by faith alone. So our pursuit of justice has to be predicated on the fact that we are justified by faith alone. That was the only way for us to be vaccinated against a deadly virus of self-righteousness, daily virus of self-righteousness, and extreme wokeism of the most lethal sort. But here, Paul seems to, uh, seems to present himself as an equal opportunity offender. He offends the self-righteous crowd on the both left and on the right, both the libertines as well as the legalists. Here is Paul asking the Colossian newbies Christians to pray. Notice he doesn't ask, he doesn't make it a primary thing to have them pray for Paul's release from imprisonment. He is so outwardly focused about what it means to have the gospel proclaimed in all the ends of the world that he seems to be almost be oblivious to his own situation. Surely his cognizance of his own status as the person behind bars, as he says, that's who I am. But more important than that was that the gospel was going to go on without impediment, marching on to the end. Paul's vision of the restoration of all things under God was achievable only as the mystery of Christ. That beautiful phrase, that means that God, that which had uh, lain hidden is now fully revealed God's identity, God's mercy, God's justice being revealed through the person and work of Jesus was witnessed to and proclaimed to the ends of the earth. Restoration was reestablishment and final realization of God's justice, who God is and how God desires that just act and attitude be manifested. That was only possible if the person were called to serve God was going to be mindful of the fact that justice is always a byproduct of free justification by faith alone. Nothing we have done deserves it. Nothing we have done, nothing that we are deserves it. Nothing of our worldly standings, nothing of our academic accolades, nothing of financial security, nothing of social capital, etc. 
I was speaking at a Presbyterian church uh, not too long ago, and it was a sort of a situation of a merger of two churches. And this pastor was explaining to me in this most excited way. He says, the thing that I really love about our church is that we have people from all different walks of social you know, kind of segment of, you know, society. Politically different, economically different, societally different, class-wise, whatever classes may be different. And yet, under the Lordship of Christ, we come to realize that we are freely justified by faith alone and uh, by grace alone, through faith alone. Therefore, we can actually pursue God's vision and version of justice together. That leads me to the second point. Mercy is always an outward act and attitude. You see, Christian life is not a defensive posture or attitude. Christian life is paradoxical at its core. Christianity acknowledges that God is always the one who takes the first step and initiating in creation and also in redemption. Yet the Christian response to that act of free justification is that we become self, less self-absorbed and become more empowered to expand the boundary of what um, Brandy Kellett calls our us. Who is our us? What is the scope and the boundary of we or our or us? Paul says, make the most of every opportunity, knowing how to answer everyone. Traditionally, we have interpreted these things in verses 5 and 6, primarily as if Paul was offering a new strategy for evangelism or apologetics. I think that's helpful, but there's more to it than that. Let's actually kind of listen to Martin Luther's interpretation of something like this. As some of you may know, on October 31st, it was All Saints Day, and from which uh, on October 31st in 1517, which is exactly 505 years ago, uh, Martin Luther, young professor at the University of Wittenberg, wanted to have some questions raised about the right way of handling church finances and Christian identity. So he either nailed the mail, scholars aren't 100% sure, the 95 Theses uh, on this day, October 31st. And that kind of began to get the ball rolling in terms of the reforms within late medieval Catholic Church. But two and a half years later, as the movement was gaining further kind of momentum, people are beginning to ask this question afresh. What does that mean to be a Christian? Who is a Christian? What is a Christian? And how do I understand my freedom in Christ? So he wrote this book, tiny book, but really a dynamite of a book called On Christian Liberty, published in 1520, a long time ago, but it has deep resonance for us today as well. Toward the end of the book, and we'll see a slide on that, toward the end of this dynamite of a book, he drops his mic when he says, I should have made the font bigger. Can you see it? Okay, no. Oh, yeah, it's not too bad. When you look at that back screen, it's impossible to see. All right, there you go. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's read this, because this is going to surprise us and also like convict us and, and challenge us and also comfort us. He wrote toward the end of this book, We conclude, therefore, that a Christian lives not in himself, but in Christ and his neighbor. Notice the duality. You don't live alone. You live in Christ and his neighbor. Otherwise... He's not a Christian. That is a mic drop moment right there. He says, okay, if you're not living in Christ and in your neighbor, you're not a Christian. Whoa. He lives in Christ through faith. He lives in his neighbor through love. So the primary kind of currency that you deal with with Christ is faith. You receive that gift of faith and also you kind of, that is a currency that you can continue to have that relationship with Christ in faith. But also with your neighbor, the currency that you need to think about is love. 
So he says, by faith he's caught up beyond himself into God. By love he descends beneath himself into his neighbor. To be a Christian, according to Martin Luther, this kind of almost a new founder of Western Christianity or the beginning kind of proponent of Protestantism, for him and to many of us, to be a Christian means to have faith in Christ first, that your fundamental orientation and direction and action and attitude was going to be outward. To really understand the gift of God, that God came among us and gave himself for us, to really understand it fundamentally, that means that I'm going to also have to live outwardly into, um, my, into loving my neighbor and serving my neighbor. Another way of explaining, thank you very much for that slide, another great way to explain it from the standpoint of how, as we hear this phrase, expressive, expressive individualism, that every truth is my designer truth now. You cannot offend me. You cannot tell me what to believe, what to be, because I am born this way. This is who I am. We hear that a lot. And some people are alarmed by it. Some people are excited about it. And I can see both ends of the things. But here is what one, uh, one, one, one scholar by the name of Charles Taylor in his book, Sources of the Self, The Making of Modern Identity, had to say. He, I think, in, in my opinion, presents a very helpful kind of two case studies. One is the case study of Augustine and what he says about the source of the self. And the other is what Rene Descartes had to say. So 4th century North African, 17th century French, both Christians who had a very different outlook on life. And this is what, and, and according to Charles Taylor, the modern source of the self becomes not Augustine, but Descartes. So this is what he says. Taylor says, look, there are, so for, the, the, uh, for Augustine, he understood the individual human self as three parts. Inward, outward, upward, and outward. Okay, Inward, you look at yourself and you come to realize there's something about God within, but also you come to realize there's further need for God. So you cannot just stay within yourself. Inward look isn't enough. Thus, you look upward to God, you look outward to your neighbor. And Charles Taylor said that was the vision of the human self that was predominant until modernity. And modernity comes about through Descartes and other people, and much more by others as well. But the beginning moment kind of got unleashed by Descartes' kind of meditations. He says, you know what? I think, therefore I am. So that's going to be inward move. I, I, I think, and that's how I know who I am, that I exist. But then there is a very, very discernible absence of the upward look as well as outward look. That means I, con I craft and construct and continue to maintain my sense of self by looking at myself, not to God, not to my neighbor. And I want us to think about that. For, for Taylor, uh, Charles Taylor and for many, that vision, that upward, that inward vision, without the upward and outward, deprives us of our true human identity and our true dignity and destiny as well. If the beginning of my being is me, myself, and I, if the end of my journey is me, myself, and I, according to Taylor, and according to the Bible, actually, forget Charles Taylor, forget Augustine, the Bible says, you know what, if you want to, Jesus said, if you want to come after me, if you want to be my disciple, if you want to imitate me, I want you to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So you cannot stay just inward because you've got to deny yourself. And take up your cross, that means you've got to look upward to see Christ. And now you've got to kind of follow after me, meaning every day you take your step outwardly into the world, into loving that neighbor. So let's move quickly to the final third point. Love as the bond that unites justice and mercy in the Christian journey. 
See, the love of God was not an idealism. This love of God that Christians have declared since the days of Jesus and the apostles, we receive by faith which becomes the foundation of our pursuit of justice and mercy is not rosy. Our pursuit of mercy and justice has to be done with the realism of our fallen condition as we see even within our own context here at Christ Prize or every other church in the world. As our sisters and brothers are ordained into their offices, they're embracing themselves into what Teresa of Avila called Via Dolorosa, way of sadness, way of sorrow, pathway of sorrows, as identifying with the cross of Christ. Just as Dorothy Day has said it so powerfully, love in action is difficult and dreadful when compared to love in dreams. It's so easy to dream about love, but when you actually try to extend and and embrace and experience love and extend to others within the context of the local church, it can be difficult, it can be dreadful. Yet our officers at CPC are not practicing Christian justice, mercy, and love in dreams. They are doing so in action. That's why they need our prayers. That's why we need to build and continue to beautify the church through prayers, as Paul reminds us, in our actions of imitating Christ as Christ taught us to pray. That's why the Trinity is best understood as the Father, as the lover, and the Son, as the beloved, and the Holy Spirit as the love that unites the Father and the Son. So that is what undergirds our ministry, the love of God in the Holy Spirit, which has been poured out for all of us, that bears witness to God's being and God's action in Christ, and that also reminds us that the table that we are about to participate in is not, let's say, kind of mere memorial, but this is the sacred ordained means of communicating with the Christ who, though physically absent from us, but in reality far more present in his physical absence than how some people are in their physical presence that themselves. So let's pray and we'll go to our Eucharist. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we thank you that you are ever near us and with us in Jesus Christ. That as we have heard these words of what it means to be a Christian, that is someone who understands that justice is to be understood within the context of our justification by faith alone, the wonderful principle of the Reformation theology, but also that our mercy has to be an outward act that our life is to be lived out not only inward, but also outward and upward, extended to God and to our neighbor, and that love is the thing that really makes us who we really are, because God within God is love. So we thank you for your invitation to come to your table of love and mercy and justice. May we participate with joy and gratitude. In your name we pray. Amen.